This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. But faced with adverse legislation based on false assumptions that defy the logic of how Facebook works, and which, if passed, will create globally unprecedented forms of financial liability for news links and content, we feel it is important to be transparent about the possibility that we may be forced to consider whether we continue to allow the sharing of news content on Facebook in Canada. That was Kevin Chan, that is Global Policy Director and a frequent public voice on behalf of Facebook, appearing before the Heritage Committee on Bill C-18, the Online News Act. The comments, which had obvious echoes with a similar position the company took in Australia last year, attracted immediate attention and an angry rebuke from government MPs. They quickly accused the company of threatening Canadians, with its announcement that it would consider stopping news sharing in Canada if the bill passes unamended. But are these threats a bluff, or, having just laid off 11,000 employees, an accurate reflection of where the company stands on the value of news on its platform given current economic realities? Axel Bruns, Professor of Communication and Media Studies at QUT Digital Media Research Centre at the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, Australia, and he's also a Chief Investigator in the ARC Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision-Making and Society. He's written about the Australian News Media Bargaining Code and the effects of the Facebook news-sharing block that took place in 2021. He joins me on the podcast to discuss the Australian experience in an effort to answer the question of whether Facebook is bluffing or if the practice of news sharing in Canada on the platform might be placed at risk if Bill C-18 should become law. Axel, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's re- I'm really glad that you've taken the time out of what I know is a busy schedule, including a lot of travel, to come on. Uh, as, as, I, as, I, as you know, Canada finds itself in the midst of a political and policy battle that I think will sound familiar to you and to, to many others in Australia, mm-hmm. namely the prospect of requiring internet platforms, particularly Facebook and Google, to compensate news outlets for the use of their content. And while there's Quite a lot of debate, even within that sentence. You know, what does what constitutes use? Uh, the commonality here is that uh, there's been unsurprising opposition from the internet companies and a great deal of support, also I guess unsurprisingly, from the large media companies in Canada. Now, I I thought it'd be great to to bring you on the podcast to talk a bit more about what happened in Australia and what Canada might learn from that, in part because Facebook's recent position in Canada is that if the government goes through with the bill in its current form, it may, it says it may be forced to stop sharing of news, which is something that it did in Australia as well. And some perceive all of that to be a big bluff, uh, that they wouldn't actually go through with that. So I wanted to to learn more about the experience that Australia had because they went through pretty much the same thing. Why don't we start with the the news media bargaining code that Australia created? Can you talk a bit about the Australian system and, and how it came to fruition? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, uh, I think it was uh, very much driven by the same sort of ideas that the Canadian initiative is driven by as well. Um, essentially, um, the Australian government uh, sought to um, funnel off, if you like, some of the funding, some of the uh, the, the money, that uh, the revenue that uh, the platforms are making 
um, from uh, the uh, the display, the sharing, the, the the circulation of news on on platforms like Facebook and others, um, and it sort of funneled that money, some of that advertising money, particularly to the producers of that news uh, content, um, uh, and essentially the news media media bargaining code uh, was intended to compel the platforms to enter into negotiation with news media to bargain, as the name says, with news media. Um, uh, to uh, arrange for some sort of payment, essentially, uh, for the for the circulation of of this news content on their platforms. I want to get into sort of the response of Facebook and some of the other issues. Mm -hmm. But curious, the, the you know the debate in in Canada has focused on a, on a bunch of issues, some of which include you know the beneficiaries of this. I, I know in Australia, obviously, the Murdoch Empire is mm -hmm. is very powerful. Uh, in Canada. Much of the talk has been about the beneficiaries being broadcasters, as well as the handful of very large media outlets. Did you have similar kinds of discussions for us? So, for example, some of the concerns been that some of the smaller outlets might not be beneficiaries as, as part of this system and concerns as well about the transparency of the whole system. Did you see some of those same kinds of debates playing out in Australia? Very much so, because uh, while I've given you sort of the official uh, version of why this news media bargaining code was meant to be introduced, um, in, in many ways, really, ultimately, uh, the question of who this would benefit, of course, is very much at the back of all of this as well. And as you say, Australia is very much dominated by Murdoch media still, um, uh, particularly uh, when it comes to legacy media like newspapers, uh, uh, Murdoch media are often the only newspapers in town. Um, and uh, of course, it's particularly those sorts of legacy media as well who've been doing it quite tough in, in recent years. So um, to an extent, uh, this was also seen uh, by by some commentators as, as a way to prop up uh, traditional media empires in Australia, both in, in print and uh, uh, broadcast. Um, and uh, thereby ultimately also supporting maybe some of the friends in the media that the then government had. Um, and the concern was that this would not benefit, for instance, our public service broadcasters, uh, ABC and SBS, that it wouldn't really do anything for uh, newer entrants into the market, born digital outlets, um, that uh, even collectively wouldn't have the bargaining power uh, that these large uh, media companies do. Um, and in Australia, and I think this probably applies to Canada as well, there was also concern that rural and regional media would also be uh, somewhat left out from this uh, compared to the large uh, big city media companies. Yeah, no, we're seeing much the same debate. During our hearings before the House of Commons, we've had some of the very small media outlets from provinces like Saskatchewan and Alberta say that upwards of 50, 60, even 70% of their members would not be eligible under the way the, the way the bill is currently constructed. And there's the prospect the government may seek to respond to some of those concerns. The, the, so so the, we've seen those kinds of concerns. It's interesting that those parallels exist. Uh, let's turn to the response from the Internet platforms, which I suspect may have been somewhat similar as well. Mm -hmm. Now, as the bill was being developed in Australia, Facebook famously responded in Australia by saying that if news sharing went ahead in, in the form that was being discussed, it it might force be forced to uh, stop that new sharing. You know, what, what was basically its argument or rationale behind making uh, taking that position? Yeah, and, and maybe to give you a bit of a timeline for this as well. So the, the bill uh, 
the draft, I guess, was really starting to be discussed in the second half of 2020. And uh, from about August, September onwards, basically both Facebook and Google as well were um, making noises about what that would mean. Um, Google was showing up a few, uh, uh, you know, pop-ups essentially on its side saying, uh, the way that Australians use Google is at risk. Your search experience will be hurt by the new regulation, um, but in some ways kind of ruled the coattails of Facebook, which responded a lot more forcefully and a lot more explicitly um, by basically saying, if this draft court becomes law, and I'm, I'm quoting from their release, uh, we will reluctantly stop allowing publishers and people in Australia from sharing local and international news on Facebook and Instagram. Um, so uh, a very clear threat, essentially, uh, to say, well, you know, in, if this happens, then we just can't carry news on this platform anymore. Um, it uh, was, uh, you know, essentially saying, well, in some ways we support and we share the, uh, the, the support for news organizations, but this isn't the way to do it. Um, this is overreach. Uh, this is uh, trying to regulate tech companies uh, and the way that they do business with publishers. So that's the kind of rhetoric that they, that they rolled out. And the writing was very clearly on the wall. They were not in any way being, being um, uh, you know, they were, they, were, they were not hiding, I guess, what they, were, uh, what they said they would do. Um, they were very explicitly spelling out what the conse consequences of this law uh, would be. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, the, it sounds like the Facebook put out a blog post here in Canada. It sounds like uh, they were pretty similar, um, mm -hmm. although the there's a sense, at least so far, that some of the other stakeholders in the government isn't taking it all that seriously. They're certainly taking the position seriously, in which they've been um, very anxious to paint Facebook as being evil for for taking this position. But mm -hmm. there's sort of this underlying sense that somehow they wouldn't really go through with it. I'm curious how did how did the Australian government respond at first? Did they take this seriously and think that this was a, a real possibility? Um, no, I think that there was a sense that, yes, this is probably just the bluff in Australia as well. Um, uh, for instance, the um, ACCC, the Australian uh, Consumer Competition Commission, um, uh, which was really very deeply involved in developing this, uh, this law and uh, was uh, the, the organization, the, the government organization that released, for instance, initial concept papers and draft legislation for uh, for comment as well, um, uh, its chairman Rod Sims at the time responded by essentially pointing to the amount of news that circulates on Facebook. Uh, he he was quoting, uh, for instance, the the Digital News Report, which is this annual global study of uh, digital news platforms and the use of of news on digital platforms. Uh, that said in 2020 that 39% of Australians used Facebook for general news, 49% used Facebook for news about COVID-19, which of course was very much uh, in full swing at that point as well. So in some ways the government and, and its its organizations essentially said, well, um, they wouldn't do this because news is so widespread on Facebook. Uh, so many Australians rely on news uh, uh, you know, on, on Facebook for their news. Uh, so it's very unlikely that Facebook would deprive them of, of, uh, of this really critical use. But at the same time, Facebook then also came out and responded and said, well, um, 
Yes, but that's assuming that news is actually a really important aspect on, on, on Facebook. Um, it might be important for Australians, but it's not actually that, that important for Facebook. Um, uh, Facebook responded and said news represents a fraction of what people see in their news feed. It's not a significant source of revenue for us. That's their literal words. Um, so uh, in in some ways, this this was kind of you know responding to the government by by saying, well, Yes, we, we know lots of Australians get their news from Facebook, but it's still not a, a, a very big use. There's lots of other things that Australians do on Facebook as well, and we will just concentrate on those other things. Um, and, uh, you know, Australian news users will just have to have to live with that. Yeah, no, that's uh, the, the parallels here are, are mm -hmm. very obvious, right down to, quite frankly, Rod Sims being very vocal in Canada. Uh, about the Australian mm -hmm. system and why Canada should adopt it. He's done op-eds. He's appeared before a Canadian um, uh, committee that's been examining this issue. So uh, th there's been clear parallels there. Uh, and Facebook's claims uh, about the importance of news on the platform are similar. They they, they now say it's down to 3% of, of the content is news content in terms mm -hmm. of what's actually, if it's actual use and so is relatively immaterial from a revenue perspective. Um, one of the reasons I was so anxious to have you on is that you, you actually mm -hmm. did research on what happened once they uh, did start blocking news for a period of time. Can you start by talking a bit about how they went ahead and did that, mm -hmm. how broad or overbroad was the blocking and, and how effective was their attempt to block news sharing on their platform? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this this happened ultimately as the bill was being introduced into parliament for, uh, uh, you know, to be voted on. Um, in February 2021, um, so in on the 18th of February 21, essentially from from early in the morning, uh, Facebook implemented this this uh, what ultimately was a total ban on news in Australia. Um, so that meant that the Australian news outlets themselves could uh, no longer post any content on on their Facebook pages, uh, and in fact their Facebook pages were basically empty of content. Anything that already was there was no longer accessible. Um, they they themselves couldn't post content. Any other Australian news user could not post content either. Um, so links to Australian news sites, in fact, links to international news sites as well. So it wasn't just limited in that sense to Australia. Um, uh, so any anyone who wanted to share, uh, you know, a link to a news site um, would get a, a a pop up saying this this post cannot be shared at this point. Anyone trying to access news. Uh, from any source on Facebook would get a, a, a pop-up saying this content cannot be accessed right now. Um, but it went actually well beyond that. So in addition to um, legitimate, genuine news outlets um, that suddenly had no content on their pages and whose content could not be shared, um, this also went to other kind of news-like content, for instance, the uh, Australian Bureau of Meteorology, which in itself isn't a news outlet, obviously, but but has content that is ultimately newsworthy its page was empty as well and uh, even the uh, the pages of uh, the various state and federal health departments which of course again in the middle of the con of the covid pandemic were providing daily updates on cases and on changes to regulations on where to find vaccines and uh, testing centers and so on their content disappeared as well which was particularly problematic of course at that time and it went really all the way down even to to things like um you know um, cooking magazines and other forms of uh, i guess 
media but not news content as such um, so a lot of that also disappeared um, in a handful of cases those bans were rescinded over the the, the following days because uh, obviously um, uh, there was a lot of negative publicity not just about the news media ban o overall but about the the overreach that this showed as well um, um, but Ultimately, it really meant that there was a really a complete and, and total news blackout on Facebook in Australia uh, from the 18th of February. And uh, we actually, with the data that, uh, you know, we as researchers have access to, which comes ironically from Facebook's own data service, CrowdTangle, um, we were able to see that um, the, the posting of links to news content um, really went down to almost zero. Uh, it took a little while for that to be fully implemented. People were at first finding some ways to circumvent this by posting, uh, you know, shortened links, bitly bit links and so on, by posting uh, indirect links and so on to, to, to news content, but uh, Facebook gradually cracked down on that as well. And really more importantly, we could see the effects of the news blackout, uh, the news ban by uh, by looking at engagement as well. So even if people were still able to somehow circumvent the ban by using a, a chain of, of, of link shorteners, that would, would make it difficult for Facebook to identify that this was news content at the time of posting. Eventually, it would wisen up to this and um, there was just a total lack of engagement by ordinary users with that content that we saw during this time. So it was really a very comprehensive news ban on Facebook, which uh, lasted for, you know, the best, well, really over a week. It, it lasted to the 26th of February, um, at which point then finally this was this was switched on again. And uh, that really was a, an obvious demonstration of Facebook's ability to take the nuclear option, if you like, to, to so comprehensively um, remove all of this news content from its platform. And I think a clear warning sign probably for other countries that are attempting to implement something similar. Okay. So it, it worked. Did uh, Based on your research, did people move elsewhere? So did other social media companies, for example, see an uptake in, uh, in the sharing of news? But were there alternatives, in a sense, to Facebook for some of this kind of uh, sharing of news content? It's it's really difficult to say, to be honest, because um, we we really lack comprehensive data on on other platforms as well as on on general use of of news sites directly. Of course, people could still go to the news sites directly if they could remember what the URLs were, but uh, um, it, it, we 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 don't have public data on on these con kinds of patterns in full. Um, however, I, I'd also really note, I guess, that a lot of people, of of course. Facebook is right in many ways. A lot of people simply aren't on Facebook for the news. So many Facebook users, and we know this from years of research, uh, are, if anything, encountering news serendipitously on the platform because someone in their network will share a link that ultimately is interesting and that they might click on, um, but they're not actively seeking out the news. They're just seeing it because someone else shared it into their feeds. Um, so those uh, much more casual news users who are not actively searching, who are not necessarily going to uh, the websites of news outlets themselves, first may have not even noticed the absence of news in their feed because a lot of other stuff was still there, and uh, then may also not, not very actively try to compensate for, for that lack of news in their feed. So I think for a lot of people, 
um, who are really ordinary Facebook users and, and not not news junkies in in that sense, um, they might have just continued on their on their way on Facebook in in really uh, quite a normal way, and uh, may not really have noticed the absence of news in that sense. In fact, we we did look at um, the the overall volume of engagement. Uh, to the extent that we could see it on Facebook, which is really engagement with Australian-based Facebook pages on any topic. Um, and uh, from that, you really couldn't see any kind of positive or negative uh, impact of the, the news ban at all. Essentially, the total volume of, of engagement uh, with what we could identify as clearly Australian pages on Facebook uh, really continued in at very much normal levels. Um, and the drop down in engagement with news wasn't even really visible in those figures either, because again, Facebook is actually right that people are not predominantly on the platform for news. So if news disappears, the vast majority of people will sim simply continue to use Facebook as they do. Um, and that that absence of news may not really register all that much either. No, Kyle, I want to, thanks for that. That's a, it's a terrific answer. And I want to drill down just a bit further mm -hmm. on, on where you left off. Facebook's position in Canada has been that news may be important to the news organizations in terms of its appearance on Facebook. From But from Facebook's perspective, it's very, a very small part of the user experience. And so isn't all that um, isn't all that important. And so your research actually provided the opportunity to test that theory, right? mm -hmm. essentially taking a look at what was the engagement like. Uh, once news was removed, and and I take it you found that in fact Facebook is is pretty accurate in its in its position that there did the needle didn't move all that much in terms of user engagement, even though as you've said they were successful in basically removing news almost entirely from the platform. Yeah, very much so. I mean, with the limitation, of course, that really what we can see on Facebook is in itself very tightly circumscribed by what by what data is available from Facebook and that's not not a huge deal um, what we can see is what's provided via crowdtangle Facebook's own data platform and uh, and in, within that you can search for pages and only pages not not anything that happens around personal profiles or groups or anything else that's that's also that that's not fully publicly visible but within that at least we could look at Australian Facebook pages. And we saw that, you know, on on an average day, uh, in an average hour, um, there may be, you know, about say let's let's say about two thousand posts or so um, uh, during during the daytime uh, on Australian Facebook pages per hour. That continued very much without any kind of impact from from the news ban itself. Um, in terms of interactions, so your comments and reactions and shares and so on on Facebook, um, you might have uh, maybe a, a half a million or so interactions on average per um, per hour um, with those with that content on Australian Facebook pages. And again, that volume didn't change in in any significant way uh, when news content was removed. So really, the majority of posting and interactions on Australian Facebook pages, at least, are about things other than news. Um, now, what we don't know is how much news sharing there is going on around people's personal profiles and how the absence of news might have affected that. So that would assume, for instance, that news content is more widely shared than other types of content are on Facebook around personal profiles. We simply don't know that because Facebook does not provide data on this via CrowdTangle or any other source. Um, so uh, 
that's that's the one limitation but from all that we could observe certainly um this was a really interesting natural experiment in in a sense um uh, what facebook would look like and what the activity on facebook would be when there's when there's no news at least from the spaces that we could observe um there simply wasn't a difference so yes as you're saying news on facebook is in, is important to uh, the the publishers and a lot of Australians do get their news from Facebook as well, but um, news on Facebook is not important to Facebook as a component of everything else that's going on. And ultimately, Australians and other Facebook users are doing a lot of things that aren't news uh, on Facebook as well. And that's the vast majority of, of the activity that happens on Facebook. It's just not news related. Now, in, in the aftermath of all this, both sides seem to claim victory. Um, what was your take after uh, Facebook put the put the news back up and you know things went as normal? The legislation obviously ultimately passes. Uh, did Facebook win in some way, or did the the government win? What was your view of that? Yes, in, in some ways, it's it's a it's a little bit difficult to to really uh, conclude on this fully. The government, of course. Um, uh, could point to the fact that ultimately uh, news content was restored to Facebook. So it could say that we've successfully negotiated with Facebook and uh, um, and and have essentially um, you know won won this argument because news is now back. Um, but at the same time, that's only after Facebook uh, extracted some really significant concessions from the government. Um, so uh, the way that the news media bargaining code would work is that um, platforms are designated under the code, which means that that's actually the, the designation compels them to enter into negotiations with the various media outlets to, um, to work out uh, how to, how to uh, shift some of the revenue to these, to these outlets. Um, now, the, the, the concession that Facebook has extracted is that Facebook will not be designated under the code, but will instead in, enter into voluntary negotiations with the news platform. So it is at this point, as of now, exempt from the news media bargaining code. Um, and that obviously is a very significant win for it as well. Um, the government still essentially doesn't have any power over it until some future government decides that actually Facebook should be designated under the code. And then we're probably back to square one where Facebook will uh, threaten or actively go through with removing uh, news content from its platform again. Um, so in that sense, Facebook certainly won by uh, making sure it isn't actually covered by the law at this point. Facebook has now also entered into negotiations with a selection of news publishers and has uh, you know, as a result of those negotiations, been paying some amount of funding back to the news publishers. Um, it's not entirely clear how much and under what conditions, because partly also, again, as a result of not being designated under the code, these negotiations now happen uh, bilaterally between Facebook and the publishers. They don't, the results don't need to be published. Um, there's not even any requirement that the money that the publishers are now getting from Facebook is invested back into journalism, which was, of course, the point of the news media bargaining code. Um, so from that perspective, um, 
uh, Facebook itself can can strike some deals with uh, some publishers and say it's abiding by the code and uh, uh, will have to pay you know uh, for it relatively small amounts of money to these publishers but without any kind of public scrutiny or government scrutiny uh, on those deals and in that sense you could even say that the publishers are, are possibly winners as well at least the the larger commercial publishers because they get a little bit of additional revenue from this but they're also not forced to reinvest that into journalism so that can also simply go to the company bottom line or it can be um you know uh, paid out to investors um so uh, that uh, level of um obscurity that that level of uh, that that lack of public scrutiny also benefits them because they're not forced to uh, to make additional investments in journalism so uh, this is very much a gentleman's agreement in a sense between all three sides that to some extent benefits all of them but you know except obviously the public and except the smaller publishers and public broadcasters who are not at this point uh, gaining any benefit from from these negotiations that's uh, you know that that's a fantastic summary of, of where things are at there there are real <laughs> echoes with where with with the debate in Canada where there's been talk about transparency and while the deals that might be established outside of the mandated system have to be reported to the regulator the actual numbers will not be made public to anyone and the same kinds of concerns about some of the large media organizations, perhaps the platforms, depending on what those deals look like and the government for saying that they did something, come away winners. But there's a big concern that some of the smaller players, the digital digital first type platforms in particular, mm -hmm. may ultimately end up losers as part of the system or at least for the most part on the outside looking in. Yeah, and and uh, you know the the news media bargaining court to some extent was sold by the government as um, shoring up public interest journalism, uh, generating innovation in journalism. Really, it's it's not clear that any of that will result from these deals because um, there's just no uh, no necessity. There's there's no automatism by which the funding that the companies now do receive from Facebook. Uh, actually flows to these sorts of ends. Uh, so uh, that, I think, is one of the big uh, tragedies almost in this, that the the one core thing that, uh, you know, was supposedly going to happen uh, uh, from from all of this just, just isn't eventuating. I mean, in fairness, I do need to say some publishers have invested in uh, the, the funding that they've received in uh, a handful of uh, additional journalists on on particular key uh, key areas but uh, of course uh, that's very much uh, up to the discretion of each of these publishing houses and um, uh, it certainly not happened across the board that that this really in some ways uh, improves the the quality of journalism or uh, adds journalists uh, on particular uh, news beats that have been underserved you know, Axel, I, I want to thank you so much for for joining me on the podcast. There's throughout the debate on the Canadian bill, there's so the, Australia has been invoked so frequently, oftentimes mm. as as a, as a model of what Canada is trying to do and and a model that should be followed. And and I think you know you've provided certainly some of the benefits that that may have come, but also I think some warning signals both about the uh, about where the ultimate beneficiaries are. The word journalism scarcely appears in our bill <laughs> at all, um, as well as whether or not the kind of concerns that have been raised by the platforms themselves uh, might actually come to fruition. 
So, so thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the podcast. Yeah, no worries. And I'm, I'm going to be looking at the, the Canadian case with great interest, of course, as well, to see if it plays out the same way as it has in Australia. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.